welcome to another episode of Baroque Banter. My name is Erin Helliard. I'm the Artistic Director of Pinchcut Opera, and today I'm delighted to be talking with my dear friend, Miriam Allen. As you'll learn, Miriam and I are almost exact contemporaries. We've known each other for decades. I consider Miriam to be one of the greatest sopranos of her generation, and truly a pioneer in bringing to life through her singing music from the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. A native of Australia, Miriam now lives in England, where she works regularly with Les Arts Florissants. She's currently recording with them an award-winning collection of Monteverdi and Gesualdo Madrigals. She's also performed at the BBC Proms, the Innsbruck Festival, Glyndebourne, the Opera Comique, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and she's also performed with the Dunedin Consort, Bach Collegium Japan, Concerto Copenhagen, and the English Baroque Soloists. She's featured on many recordings with Pinchgut and the Orchestra of the Antipodes, and Miriam has been featured with Pinchgut since the very beginning of the company's existence. I spoke to Miriam at her home in Windsor. Miriam Allen, it's so wonderful to welcome you to Baroque Banter. How are you this morning? Fine, thank you. Talking to you from my, the safety of my kitchen here in Windsor in Berkshire in, in the UK. Now, Miriam, I have one of my dearest memories is visiting you in the UK a couple of years ago now when we won our big award. And Indeed. going to visit you in that extraordinary place in Windsor is just a treasured memory. Could you maybe tell our listeners where you are exactly? Yeah, I am about... 20 metres away from St George's Chapel, which is located inside Windsor Castle. Uh, We are very fortunate to live here inside the castle. My husband, uh, Richard, is a lay clerk here at St George's. And St George's was the venue for Prince Harry's wedding. So if your listeners have have any memories of Prince Harry's wedding and they care to go and uh, look at the video again, they'll probably see the very tallest bass, Richard Bannon is my, my husband and he was singing there. And our house is right next to the chapel. It is amazing. I mean, <laughs> I have so much history right now. And your, and your actual house was built in the 17th century or maybe 16th? Uh, there are elements of the house that are from the 15th century. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the rest of the house is a bit later. Um, but, yeah, there are elements of all sorts of bits of history uh, dotted around uh, everywhere around here. Now, Miriam, you and I go way back. I feel like I have this. we have this really strong connection because we're almost exactly contemporaries, aren't we? We are indeed. I think we're only a few hours apart. I know. The 28th of December, 1977 is for me at least. Yeah, and I'm the 27th. So I know. It's not- <laughs> and the other thing is, um, maybe our listeners uh, might know. So I was born on the Central Coast and the wonderful Miriam was born where? In Newcastle. So only about 50 kilometres away from you. <laughs> so we're shared by not only, uh, you know, being Capricorns of a certain age, but also um, that we both grew up in regional centres outside of Sydney. <laughs> we did indeed. <laughs> and I have very fond memories of you as a young, when I was, you know, in my uh, late teens at Newcastle Conservatoire. The conservatoire, listen to me, it's using the French Newcastle yeah. Conservatorium. <laughs> well, it's precursing the music to come. But uh, indeed, and I think, Erin, you and I met when we were probably about 16 or 17, and uh, I feel very, very lucky that we've known each other all that time. Thank goodness for those, uh, those connections through Newcastle. And, and, of course, you were with Pinchgut in the very, very earliest um, uh, productions yeah. of Pinchgut, which we'll, which we'll talk about today. So, so Miriam, how's um, we're all in a state of upheaval all over the world, and I've been talking to all of our Pinchgut artists about um, 
you know, how COVID-19, the health crisis is affecting your life. How has, how has it been for you since, um, since the beginning of this year? Uh, peculiar. Life was sort of going along perfectly normally until uh, March when the virus seemed to hit the UK. Um, and then by the middle of March, uh, the cancellations were rolling in. And I think I did my last concert on the 14th of March. Um, and that's the last time I did a concert uh, with an audience. I did a very peculiar concert the other day, singing to an empty concert hall um, uh, and a camera. Uh, for a, a local theatre which is in fairly dire need of financial support. Um, so yeah, we, we, we were locked down for a very long time here in the UK and we spent a term and a half homeschooling our three children, which was uh, interesting and uh, conducting... <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine, Miriam, I can't Yeah, imagine. so that's been interesting, um, learning how to be a, a primary school teacher and a preschool teacher and watching the girls do their ballet lessons via Zoom and their cello lessons and their piano lessons. And uh, thankfully, our middle daughter, our, our middle child has her bassoon lessons from daddy, which is very convenient. So we, um, yeah, we've been here a lot and we've obviously done bits of pieces of um, recording online videos and audio for um, trying to keep the arts very much alive and at the forefront of people's imaginations um and that's been very strange as well trying to find a time to uh record when the children won't interrupt has been interesting <laughs> it's been interesting yeah. but we've we've done it and we've survived and uh hopefully life is going to return something back to normal my first sort of concerts in front of people will be uh at the end of august in france uh, for uh, Les Afflosons in the festival uh, Dans le Jardin de William Christie and anyone who knows Les Afflosons will know that William Christie in whose gardens the festival takes place is Amazing. the artistic director and founder of uh, Les Afflosons. So that's the first time I'll sing to an audience. It will have been more than five months. It's the same for all of us, isn't it? I, I'm so heartened to hear that, Mim, that you've got, um, mm. you've got a gig coming up in August. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's just wonderful. Yeah. And that, that is in um, that's in Bill is that is that in, in uh, Bill Christie's uh, chateau? It is. It's in the gardens, um, which are spectacular and beautiful, and a place I've now spent a huge amount of time. Um, the festival has had to adapt, as as everything has had to adapt. Uh, so a lot of the concerts I'm usually involved in are in the the small and very beautiful church in Tiré. In this is in the Vendée region of France, in the southwest of France. Um, but they can't do indoor events at the moment. So our concerts are all going to be outside. So we'll be singing our Bach cantatas in the garden and our Gesualdo uh, motets in the gardens. And uh, I'd rather sing than not sing. And I'm sure that the, uh, the heavenly choir will approve just as much of us singing in a garden as they would of us singing in a chapel. Absolutely. Uh, that's amazing, Miriam. So let, mm. let's go back just a little bit um, to when you were um, back here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And just tell me a little bit about your earliest training. So, so um, yeah, where did you train? And then what was your first experience with pinch gut? What can you remember? Oh, I remember very clearly. My first experience with pinch gut was pinch gut's inaugural production of Semele in 2002, uh, where <laughs> I, was, I was in the chorus, at, but I was fortunate enough to be asked to cover the title role, which was 
in hindsight, an astonishing act of faith on uh, Pinch Guts part. <laughs> part. <laughs> but uh, to go back to your question about uh, training and, and sort of origin story, as it were, I was a chorister. I was a chorister at Christchurch Cathedral, Newcastle. And I started there when I was about six years old. I, it was me and 23 boys. And uh, I started as a chorister very much in the English tradition of, of learning to sight read and oral skills and being exposed to a, a, an enormous breadth of repertoire thanks to our excellent conductor, Philip Mathias, who was the conductor, uh, the master of the choristers and the organist at the time. And so I spent quite a long time in, in the choir as a chorister, um, slowly and but surely more girls joined, including my sister and a number of other sisters of other boys in the, in the choir. And we ended up being a terrific mixed treble line, which was brilliant. And it meant that I could keep singing well into my teenage years uh, with the choir, which was great. And that led me to meet Anthony Jennings. And Tony King. Tony Jennings, uh, of course. Tony Jennings, yeah. Oh, God yes. rest him. Yeah. And yes. Tony is an amazing musician, an astonishing musician, whose uh, extemporizations on Hark the Herald will long live in my memory from oh, wow. uh, Midnight's Masses in, in, in Newcastle, where Tony came and played the organ. Um, he came to be at the university at the conservatorium in Newcastle that you and I have already spoken about. But he was an organist, an amazing organist, and he played, uh, I mean, just brilliantly. But Tony um, was primarily a harpsichordist and an astonishing musicologist. And he, I must have met Tony when I was probably about 14, I'd say. Um, and he was so believing in, in my abilities. And of course, he was a Baroque musician of the highest caliber. And it was probably, through a combination of Tony and, and Philip Mathias that I was really exposed to Baroque music as, as a concept. And um, in no small way, my father, Christopher Allen, who is no stranger to pinch gut audiences, um, was an, an even bigger supporter of, of Baroque music if it was possible. And so I started singing a lot of the Baroque repertoire with Tony and, and then he moved to Sydney. He moved to St. James's King Street. And so for a year, my last year of school, uh, my HSE year, I would travel to Sydney with my dad every week and we would sing in Tony's totally amazing choir. Wow. It was, it truly was amazing. Um, and that was the late that, 80s, Miriam? Was it the late 80s? No, this, early... is, this is 95. 95, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I spent that year spending uh, singing with, uh, with Tony and then in the middle of the year Tony was doing a job with the song company they were doing a performance of King Arthur and I was 17 years old doing my mock HSE and Tony said I think you should be a soloist which was totally mental uh, and, and the song company were so charming so welcoming so beautiful so generous and let me this little upstart something <laughs> And I got to sing with these brilliant musicians, these great, great musicians. And then it, the story gets a bit sad. Tony suddenly died. And it was the weekend of the performances of King Arthur. And the, 
the performances had to, to take place, obviously. They're in the Great Hall at Sydney University. And somehow we did them uh, with Lucinda Moon uh, leading from the violin and Amazing, Luke yeah. Green and Luke Green leading from the harpsichord. And for many years afterwards, I could not hear a note of King Arthur. Uh, it was tremendously um, emotional for me. But Tony's influence on me and on music making in Australia and Baroque music making, I think was, was far, far reaching and continues to this day. I can now listen to King Arthur and listen to it with incredibly happy memories. But I, I think that Tony's influence and Philip's influence and dad's influence can never be underestimated. That's <laughs> a wonderful they're... story, Miriam. Absolutely oh, amazing. It's, but it, and every word of it is true because they are, I mean, I know Tony's no longer with us, but Philip and dad very much are, thank God. Okay. And their incredible belief in me, their unswerving faith that my voice was something worth listening to um, was very humbling, still is very humbling. It and, most um, definitely is worth listening to. I, I... <laughs> I get the most Thanks, immense Aaron. joy from, from you, Miriam. In fact, I should tell my listeners, I was just telling Miriam that um, she's kind of been my muse as we've been going through isolation because I've been revisiting all of these wonderful recordings and, and Mim, your voice has just shone through like a beacon of light. It's been extraordinary. I'm so, so proud to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that, that there's been something so positive for you. And it is interesting you talk about Tony because I think I told you my experience with, with Tony Jennings is at about the same time I met him when he was doing rehearsals for King Arthur. And I was coming like you, traveling down by, I'm not sure if you're coming by train, but I remember I was <laughs> coming by train from yeah. Gosford to sort of at, at, at that time, take lessons at the School of Extension Studies at the Con um, yeah. with Paul Dyer. And I was, um, I was looking for, you know, other people who worked in Baroque music. And I think you yeah. were there in the, on the horizon. And I st started to meet people like Anthony Walker. And then I met yeah. Tony and we had this wonderful lunch and it was literally the week before he passed away. It was, um, yeah. I was really, really uh, devastated to hear about that. And I think many people in, in the Australian music scene as well. And it's, 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 it's a testament to his genius that he, uh, he touched you so deeply. And I think the, the testament to his genius was also that the Australian Chamber Orchestra showed up to his funeral and Amazing. played. It yeah, was, incredible. It was genuinely astonishing. Um, and we, we owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. I think Baroque music making in Australia would would be very different without, uh, the landscape of it would be very different without him having been a part of it. But I was so grateful to him because it, it introduced me to another Kiwi, um, which was Rosalind Holton. Dr. Rosalind Holton is, uh, is oh, she's just the most amazing woman. She's so she's astonishing. She certainly is. And I was so lucky she moved into uh, Tony's position at the University of Newcastle when Tony had, had passed away and left. And, and Rosalind brought with her her astonishing brain, her amazing energy and her musicianship, which is just pours out of her fingers. Um, and because of Rosalind, my university experiences were just so amazing and so rich and so varied and her encyclopedic knowledge of Baroque music is uh, well it's something to be envied that's for certain and I'm she would say oh oh try this oh have a sing of that or tell me if you like this one and uh she she really was the most amazing influence and so through the university years I got to spend a huge amount of time with Rosalind and all and all of her amazing thoughts and brilliant ideas and her 
extraordinary editions, particularly of Alessandra Scarlatti's vocal works. Um, and I got to spend all of that time with her, but also with Jamie Hay, who is just the best cellist. And Jamie was at university with me and with Rosalind. And so the three of us would give lots of performances and lots of premieres of Rosalind's uh, scholarly editions of the Scarlatti works and it was a privilege to be a part of that and honour to be asked to sing it and um, my years of playing with Jamie and Rosalind are uh, well they form some of my greatest memories. It's so wonderful to hear I'm just reminded of the wealth of talent we have in Australia and baroque music uh, just mm -hmm. talking to you about about this it's it's really heartwarming. Now Miriam we're going to move to your first musical choice today which is the Chacon from Dardanus could you tell us why you chose this piece? Yeah, Rosalind. <laughs> Rosalind, <great>. is <laughs> Rosalind is the reason for my, my love of chacons. I am a sucker for a chacon. I love this form. It is, it speaks to me on so many levels. Um, but Rosalind's group was called Chacona. And uh, I think her love of chacon is, is well documented as well. Um, but it's the word, and I said this to you when you and I were, were, were emailing backwards and forwards, the word that I always think of when I think of pinch gut is collaboration. And one of the collaborations is obviously the collaboration between you and I and the artistic decisions we make and how much you and I love performing together. Then there's the artistic collaboration with the company, with pinch gut, the company, with Alison Johnston and the excellent and wonderful CEOs you've had, Cressida and Sarah and Genevieve, and the way in which they collaborate with the artists is unique and so special. Then there's the collaboration with the orchestra. And my love for the orchestra is true <laughs> and I hope <laughs> will be reflected in this. It is definitely this, uh, re reciprocated, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's true love, it's true love. So I had to pick the Chacon from Dardanus. It's the best.
That was the Chaconne from Act 5, Scene 3 of Rameau's Dardanus with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker. And I agree with you, Miriam, who does not love a, ch- a Chaconne? Who doesn't? In fact, Erin, I'm going to turn the tables here and I'm going to be the interviewer and ask you, <laughs> hey, the music, the theme music for Baroque Banter, what's that, Erin? <laughs> well, that is a Chaconne. Now, I'll tell you why we chose that. Yeah, go on. Because the wonderful Alison Johnston, who is basically not only one of my dearest friends, but, you know, the, the beating ho- uh, heart of the company, um, her ringtone is this wonderful Chacon. And whenever I hear that, I am reminded of Alison and my heart warms because sometimes when we're in the office, when we're in the office together, yeah, um, I would hear that. So whenever I hear that piece, I just think of Alison and it makes me happy. So I thought, what a wonderful way to start Baroque Banter. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. It is one of my other favourite chacons. Um, but I, I didn't know that about Alison. But now that you say it, I think I've heard that ring. <laughs> exactly. That ring no, it's so <laughs> wonderful. And funnily enough, Fairy Queen, the Pinch Cut production of Fairy Queen was one of the yeah. few productions I wasn't personally involved in. I did the edition for it. I remember you doing the edition. Yeah, it's a great score. One I've still got upstairs. Oh, great. <laughs> now, Miriam, just getting back to your... Um, your, your sort of what made Miriam Allen the amazing singer she is today. So you could have chosen to do any kind of singing, but in the end you've become a world specialist in music of the 17th and 18th century. And you've mentioned these great influences in your life. How did that then lead to the next phase of your life where you moved to England? Yeah, um, a series of bizarre uh, coincidences and events that I could never have quite predicted. Um, I was doing my master's degree at the University of Newcastle and working with Rosalind and Jamie, as I mentioned, and I got the opportunity and some funding together by winning a couple of a couple of prizes to go to the UK and to Europe for a couple of weeks to have a sticky beak around, have a go at a few bits and pieces, go to a summer school um, and try some stuff out. And one of the things that I won was a prize to go to the Dartington International Summer School in the UK to spend a week singing in masterclasses with Emma Kirkby. And so, yeah, so I went to this masterclass um, and me being me, me being a loudmouth, um, <laughs> they, uh, yes, surprise, surprise, <laughs> they sort of said, does anyone want to sing? Who wants to go first? And there was, I think there were 18 people in the, in the class and I sort of looked around and I thought, look, I've come halfway across the world. I don't know anyone here. I've got nothing to lose. And I stuck my hand up 
And I said, yeah, I'll sing. And so I did. And that began my collaboration with Emma. And she's still a huge part of my life and, and the life of my children. She's hugely involved with all of us. We see her regularly and we speak to each other quite a lot. Um, and so for the next few years, I... I lived in, in a flat at the top of her house and I, and I sort of started being in the UK from there. I came back to, to Sydney to be in that inaugural production for Pinchcut, uh, for Semele, and I came back a number of times for, for production since. But since 2002, I've been living here in the UK. And uh, so that's how that all came about. A bit bizarre, but a bit wonderful as well. And then it's funny because we, I, I also went to Dartington. I'm not sure if I mentioned that to you. I went there twice. I don't think I, I, don't think I knew that. <laughs> I went to Dartington twice. I think Dartington has a very special place with lots of musicians because oh. that magical campus. Yeah, I worked mm-hmm. there as an accompanist. Um, Emma Kirkby wasn't there, on the, uh, but Anthony Ruley was there and Evelyn, yeah. um, Evelyn, Evelyn Tubb. Tubb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it was extraordinary. Yeah. I, I studied with Colin Tilney there, but yes, how amazing. Oh. I didn't realize that you went there too. And that's how you met Emma Kirkby, the great. It Emma was Kirkby. how I met Emma. Yeah. And so from there, I, at that particular summer school, I met a number of other people and I, obviously I was singing all day, every day. So um, people would uh, say, Oh, you know, who are you? And blah, blah, blah. And we exchanged phone numbers and things like that. And from there I started singing, um, in Europe and around the UK and thankfully I my my dad is actually a, a British citizen so I have a British passport as well as a as an Australian one so I was able to stay here and work here and and live here and it just sort of grew out of that um, but the question of Baroque music and, and why Baroque music is is a really interesting one and it's one that I've given a lot of thought to over the years essentially it's the music that sings back to me. It's the music of my heart. It's the music that I find myself drawn to. Yes. It's not that it just suited me, though I think it probably does. It's that it is the music of my soul. And I can't be without it. Yes. And I can't live without it. And I, I have to hear it. And to me, that is the reason. That is why. And I think all of us as, as young musicians um, need to be exposed to the to the greatest breadth of it. And it's not to say I don't enjoy other music. I do, I welcome new music into my life. And I've sung a lot of contemporary music, a lot of new works. Uh, and I, it's not that I don't enjoy it, I do, I love it. But it is not the music of my heart. And for me, the choice to specialize in this in this era of music came from that. From came from the repertoire. Things back, yeah. That's amazing, Miriam, because it's funny, I, f- I fight a little bit at the moment in my own teaching life, I guess, and maybe it says a lot about Australia too, there's this sense of you either sing early music or you sing mm. opera somehow, and there are two different yeah. kinds of modes of singing, and I, I don't agree with that, but I'd be very interested to hear your take on that kind of idea. No, I, I entirely agree with you. I don't, I don't believe that one has to come at the exclusion of another, um, and I think the pigeonholing of, of, of singers, particularly young singers, is, is one of the more dangerous aspects of the sort of broader musical society. Mm. Um, I have loved being on the operatic stage. It's been a great part of my life and it's, it's, it's obviously been something that you and I have spent the majority of our time together has been working on, on an opera. Yep. But I don't see um, how you can exclude opera from any kind of singer or how you can exclude 
other music from op opera singers in inverted exactly. commas. That, that can't be right and it shouldn't be right. Um, I think there is a small world view sometimes for what a potential a singer has. Um, and, you know, having had three children and the changes to my voice over those years and things like that, you know, we, we are always growing as an instrument. We're always changing as an instrument. Being an organic instrument gives us um, both the, the, the joy of, of change, but also the burden of change. And we have something really unique as, as, as musicians, as instrumentalists, because that the instrument is always changing. And it can change from a day-to-day -day basis. If there's, you know, the wind bringing a certain pollen your way and you happen to be allergic to that, that's going to affect your voice. If you've got a cold, if you, you know, these sorts of things don't necessarily affect other instrumentalists. So obviously they do affect them, but they don't affect them in the same way. And the growth and change of the instrument over a lifetime shouldn't prohibit you from singing something. It should only widen what you can what you can sing it should only broaden your perspective so when you met emma emma kirkby mm -hmm. um how did she change the way you approach singing emma's um primary approach to to singing is is text based it's and amazing I had it? always, yeah yeah oh she's astonishing mm. and if if anyone listening ever gets the chance to either see her sing live or to, to watch her teach um I, I can't recommend it enough mind-blowing yeah it, it is it is and her attention to text to her linguistic ability and her background as a classicist um I, I think make her quite unique and bring a perspective to text that I certainly hadn't encountered before um, I came to singing very much as a musician um, and music was always more important to me than text. Um, and Emma really, really opened my eyes about this. Um, the way that she brings text to life is, is spellbinding. The way she can spin a story and, t and tell you the story is just astonishing. Yes, in any language too. In it any language, yeah. I know. It's, <laughs> that is the thing that's just amazing. Yeah. There, um, and her, her capabilities are really, really amazing. But she has a, an approach to text which really drives her technique and really drives her approach to the music. And that was great. To be challenged by that was, was really super and really new for me. Um, and she is somebody who opened my eyes to the way text could be uh, technical. And I, I've hopefully I understood that a little bit better over these, these years since. When you say technical, do you mean, could you explain that a little bit more? The way that she sings, the production of, of, of singing is based on text and, and how you approach the breath and how you approach the way, even which that you use your lips, for example, mm. is about the way that you're telling the story. And that has a profound effect on the way in which you sing. Um, and I, I think it's brilliant. I think she's brilliant. <laughs> Because I've been an avid follower of your um, pedagogical Twitter. Um, ah! I think you're fabulous. And you, you have so much to give, Miriam. I, I mean, I'm fascinated oh, by your teaching. And obviously, you've probably picked up that passion, perhaps, from people like Emma. Yeah, and my dad, who is the most wonderful teacher. The wonderful uh, Chris, absolutely. Oh, he is so wonderful. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for everything. <laughs> yeah, we could just gush for, about my dad for a while, but we'll oh, move on. What uh, a but, wonderful yeah, human being. <laughs> he really is. Um, but yeah, the passion for teaching is a huge part of my life. And I still teach, I still teach little kids. I, I really love uh, teaching. I've got um, uh, some lovely, lovely students at a school nearby who I, I love working with, who keep my um, 
Yeah, they keep me in check. Let's say that working with a with a little kid absolutely makes sure you know your foundation very, very well. And they will call you out and they will call you out. So that's that's awesome. And I mean, I work with other professionals and I tend to do a lot of work with uh, singers who are recovering from an injury or from, a, from an operation. And that's a wonderful thing to, to, to help somebody rebuild their voice, to help them find their own sound again, find their, their unique perspective, which is a privilege. Now we're going to move on to your second choice today, which is surprise, surprise, another Chacon. <laughs> it, it, it will take no one. <laughs> and we've, we've like, already talked about this wonderful Chacon um, and we have. It means so much to both of us. Um, so we'll, uh, We'll move to to this chacon from Act Five of Purcell's Fairy Queen, uh, featuring the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker. was the Chacon from Act 5 of Purcell's Fairy Queen, subtitled The Dance for a Chinese Man and Woman, featuring the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker. 
And that's another favourite chacon of yours, Miriam. <laughs> another favourite chacon. I love that piece. Um, it's interesting, you know, we were gushing about my dad and we're going to gush a bit more because I was obviously saying to dad, hey, dad, I'm going to talk to Erin today. And and uh, he said, oh, yeah, what did, what did you choose to play? What did you, because, of course, he listens to your podcast. Um, and I said, oh, well, I just wanted to pick all the chacons. And he said, <laughs> and he said to me, well, of course you did. You're a bass player. And I didn't even think of that. And of course he's right. And dad yes. has that horrible knack of being right. And, <laughs> um, but actually, Erin, talking about being a bass player and chacons really is sort of how I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the collaborative nature of Baroque music and my collaboration with Pinchgut Opera. Because for me, a lot of what we've already been talking about, about text and about interpretation and about how you use your voice in Baroque music comes from the continuo. And having spent a little bit of time, bass players aren't so useful as continuo players, in, certainly in the 17th century, but um, having spent some time sitting in that end of the orchestra um, and my instinct always when I'm looking at a new piece is to to find the bass part, to find the bass line, whether that's a sung bass line, a bowed bass line, or a plucked bass line, I always look for that. And that leads me to how pinch gut particularly, but the world over, continuo teams are the life and the blood that keep the pulse <laughs> of yes. our music alive. And the thing that's so special about continuo is the, the variety that's needed. And what you guys do is nothing short of miraculous. Well, and we need singers to be miraculous for. Uh, and yes. I mean, so I have to say it's once again, I mean, I love that our keynote, our theme for this podcast is collaboration because is. we need each other. It's sort of symbiotic, isn't it? Um, totally. Particularly in 17th century music. Particularly in 17th century music, but even in the 18th century, without you guys, we've got nothing. And one of the things that we have done, you and I together, Erin, is spend hours talking about how we approach things together. And that's not just you with your director's hat on. That's you as the harpsichordist and the organist. That's you as the continuo player. And that's a unique perspective that not every conductor has. Yes. Um, and of course, not every conductor is is playing the <laughs> playing the harpsichord in the pit either. But it is something that I know you and I have spent hours discussing, and um, I have such fond memories of us rehearsing down at Rush Cutters Bay yes. with Clint yes. Clint Vanderlinda, the wonderful oh, Clint Vanderlinda, who is also studying to be a harpsichordist, and the three of us sitting around talking about harmony and orchestration and how we would want to colour an 18th century scene, a Handelian scene, with continuo. And that is so, so important for the singer in Baroque music. So if any of your listeners are, are, are wanting to know what else can I listen to, what can I listen out for when I'm listening to Baroque opera, listen for the continuo team because their creativity, their invention, their response, their assistance are integral to the success of the interpretation of text and of character. Yes, it's wonderful to hear you say that. I mean, it's 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 so true, isn't it? And I guess I guess I it comes from a very deep respect for the historical um, specificity of the relationship between harpsichord and singers. 
um, or keyboardists and singers. And it's just been, I mean, ever since Monteverdi, um, those people who were either composers or the directors of, of an opera, you know, were, mm. were keyboardists and they had that very close connection with singers. Um, yeah, and of course, in uh, in early parts of the 17th century, later parts of the 16th century, the, the lute being a part exactly. of it as well. Um, and Caccini talking about how he accompanied himself and uh, you know, the, the, the idea that the, the voice part and what we now think of as an accompanying part um, were very much integrated. Absolutely. And I think f for me, it's, it's essential that, you know, I make, I make friends with the Continuo team yes. as soon as possible. Oh gosh, because, that's so wonderful. <laughs> but because you guys are the people who allow me to do what I need to do to find the text, the, the interpretation of the text and to find the character that I'm presenting because this is this is essential stuff and we can paint so many pictures with a small change in orchestration which is still the same harmony it's still the same notes it's still yeah, the same exactly. rhythm. but if we change it from a from a harpsichord to an organ to a regal to a lute to a theorbo to a harp you change so much more than just an instrument you can change the character of a scene. You can change the way in which there's a dialogue. So if you have one singer accompanied by a Baroque harp, another singer accompanied by a harpsichord, and the third voice perhaps accompanied by an organ, you can change through that, that small change of orchestration, you can change the way in which people speak to each other on stage. And as you've, you've alluded to in previous podcasts, you've talked about the way in which the recitative drives, drives the text, especially in, in sleep scenes and so forth changes in orchestration in those situations can change the way that that scene um, changes the narrative so you don't just get a change of sound you get a change of of story you get that drive of the narrative from the way in which the continuo team are participating in the scene and the thing that I can never get my head around is the endless creativity <laughs> I don't know how you do it it's astonishing every day every day you guys man oh, I don't know how you do it oh it's really I'm blown away about because I mean I, we would say exactly the, it's a little love fest going on because it is right <laughs> obviously we couldn't you know be we're, we're inspired by by this the sung voice and also that that um, relationship but of course in that respect I'm, I'm just thrilled that science, one of the greatest uh Theorbo players in the world um, has returned to Australia, and that's Simon Martinellis. Martin oh, so many happy memories of playing, exactly. playing with Simon. Yeah, we're so just awesome. about to do a, a project together, and he's a, not only a dear mate, but an extraordinary musician. And he really um, is. Once again, yeah, that Theor that combination of of keyboard and Theorbo, and now we've got also Hannah Lane, beautiful harp player. Um, is also with us, so it's thrilling. All those different and the sound of plucked instruments. Oh, it's just the best. Moving on to um, your current work, so you you've been uh, you've got now quite a strong relationship with Les Arts Florissant, don't you, Miriam? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been about fifteen years now, and of course, Pinchgut Opera are to blame. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> Uh, well, it comes back to a sleep scene. Of course it comes back to a sleep scene, to a sommet, the sommet scene in Dardanus in 2005, I think it was, Erin. Yes. Um, and the, the wonderful production we did, directed by the brilliant Justin Way. Um, and there was a, 
there is a very long sleep scene in which I was uh, a very willing participant. It's absolutely spellbinding music and highly recommended. It's oh, one of the greatest sommets, yeah. <laughs> it really is. And in that scene, Paul Agnew, who was uh, there from France uh, to sing in, in our production, uh, had to lie on the floor because Justin's a meanie and <laughs> lie on the floor for a couple of hours, it seemed. And I got to sing a beautiful aria, Arc of Votre Sore, over Paul while he slept, bless him, and beautifully accompanied by Jamie Hay on the cello. And I, poor, poor Paul, he had to have me singing over him all the time. Then a couple of weeks later, after Pinchcut had finished and I'd, I'd, I'd gone back home, in fact, I was in, I was in San Francisco in California with John Elliott Gardner and I was singing the C minor mass and my phone went ping and it was Paul. Hi Mim, how are you? Uh, I think you should come do some do some singing with me with the Arflow. Amazing. And that was the beginning of my relationship with with Les Arflow Song and from that first time uh, we started, I think it was in 2006, um, I sang some Monteverdi with Paul, which was the sixth book of magicals. Um, and that was my first project with them. And then from then, I think my next project was a Vivaldi project with Paul and the orchestra in Paris. Uh, and I've been working with them ever since, which is uh, one of the great joys of my life. And Paul has become uh, an enormous part of my life. And we have a lot of fun collaborating around the world on various projects. Um, but uh, yes, it was Monteverdi's sixth book that started it off, all because of Pinchcut. Well, your, um, I mean, I would consider the recent recordings by Les Arts Florissant of the Monteverdi Madrigals really p- pioneering in not only, I mean, beauty and uh, exquisite musicianship, but also historical performance practice. You know, they are real monuments. They're uh, I, I would be so proud if I was you to be part of those. <laughs> oh, I really am. <laughs> I really am. And there's a there's a very tacky photo, I think, somewhere of uh, Paul and I clutching the gramophone award. Uh, <laughs> like there's no tomorrow that we won that's, for one of the fifth. I think you mentioned to me that one of the one of the um, one of the many reasons that contributed to the the uh, extraordinary nature of that recording was you had a a really de- uh, strong, dedicated attention to the text. Like you had an amazing uh, yeah. diction coach. Was that correct? Yeah, we do. We have we have somebody with us uh, through the rehearsal process, the, the entire rehearsal process. Uh, she's called Rita Deletteris, and Rita is Paul calls her the um, the co-director. Uh, so Rita sits at the table with us. We rehearse um, in the old days. We rehearsed in Paul's house. Uh, we all we still do this now. We still live together through the the rehearsal process. Uh, so it started out this uh, when we really started these projects was 2011. Uh, my eldest daughter was only a couple of months old, and we all met at Paul's place in Normandy. And we, uh, we, that was it. We, we started living together and singing together every day and with babies crawling around and, and all sorts of things. And it sounds then like heaven. <laughs> it, it, it was, it's crazy stuff. Uh, we don't uh, meet at Paul's place anymore. <laughs> it's gotten a bit crowded. There's too many kids. Uh, but we now um, in Tire, the, uh, not actually in Bill's garden, but yeah. in the region um, that Bill has bequeathed to the French nation. That's um, right. In, in a wonderful act of generosity, uh, his estate. And as part of that, 
there are several houses in in the town that we we can live and work in and rehearsal venues and things are being built all the time and it's a proper quartier des artistes now it's it's fantastic so we now live there and we still live together and we still sit around a dining table to rehearse and amazing just as they would have done <laughs> absolutely we sit around together we cook our meals together we we are together and rita is with us uh, so there are six singers always six of us because Monteverdi is not, uh, and we now we're now in the middle of a Gesualdo project. Uh, the first disc of that is out. The second disc is coming. Uh, I've I listened to the edits of books three and four only a couple of weeks ago. I know that they're they're coming really really soon. How beautiful! Um, oh, they are spectacular. So sure. the the, the Gesualdo project has followed the Monteverdi project in this in the sense that there are always six of us because Monteverdi and Gesualdo are never clear about the quinto. Yes. So the quinto part can often be a second soprano part. The quinto part can often be a second tenor part. So we always tour with six singers, uh, two sops, an alto, two tenors, and a bass. Yes. Uh, and one of the sops or one of the tenors will step out for each piece. So you'll always see six of us on stage. Um, there are some six part pieces um, uh, in both Monteverdi and, and, and in the Gesualdo. And in fact, Monteverdi gets a bit ambitious at times and we go to about eight, eight parts nine parts I think uh in book five so we will sit around the the dining table together um Paul at the helm with his stack of books about uh Monteverdi and performance practice and Gesualdo and the history of Italy at the time and and we will with Rita talk about it we'll sing to be sure and Rita pops in and says she doesn't understand the sense of this or this is the <laughs> sense of that or there's a double or there's a double meaning here and we can bring out that double meaning and she is absolutely a huge part of the rehearsal process that's incredible well um mm. now in honor of paul agnew and your relationship with him we're going to hear um the probably the most famous aria from Rameau's dardanus this is um your third choice today and that's Lieu funeste from act four of scene one of Rameau's dardanus sung by Paul Agnew with the Orchestra of the Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker.
la beauté qui m'engage, le sceptre que je perds, ce prix de mes travaux. Tout va de mon rival devenir le partage, tandis que dans ses fers, je That was Lieu Funeste from Act 4 of Scene 1 of Rameau's Dardanus, sung by Paul Agnew with the Orchestra of Antipodes, conducted by Anthony Walker. Miriam, it's been so wonderful to talk with you this morning. Now, I know you didn't, with your choice, I, I encourage you to choose some of your own works. We have been featuring them in our podcasts and playlists. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm afraid I'm forcing this last, our closing number on you, which is, yeah. I remember when we first worked on this in our first show, which was uh, Vivaldi's Griselda. And when you first sang this very famous art, it was now famous, but when you sang it, actually, people had not recorded it. And that's Agitata da Due Venti. Like, you know, um, Vivica hadn't recorded, you know what I mean? It's become quite famous. But actually, when we did it, Mim, it wasn't famous. Pioneers (laughs) that we are, Erin. We are totally pioneers. And you just blew me me out of the water. Uh, Well, this is a funny area. It's I... 
yeah, my dad jokes that I should be paid by the semi-quaver. And I have a memory, Erin, of you um, when we were rehearsing this, trying to count how many notes I sang. And I think you stopped at about 1,800 and just said, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great aria, but it's got a crazy range. It goes down, it's actually written by Vivaldi, it goes down to a bottom G. Um, and I think we chucked in a couple of top Ds um, and we, we had such... We had such fun with this, but we had such fun with this because of our friend Simon Martinellis, who puts in the most rocking Baroque guitar. It's fantastic. And um, even though I don't necessarily want you to play it, I'll let you play it. <laughs> Miriam, it's been so wonderful to talk to you today. Do keep safe. And Thanks, I hope Aaron, we, you too. And I hope that we'll meet sooner than later. <laughs> oh, me too. So to end our uh, episode of Brock Banter, we now have Miriam Allen singing Agitata da Dui Venti from Act 2, Scene 7 of Vivaldi's Griselda with the Orchestra of the Antipodes conducted by myself from the harpsichord with Simon Martinellis on a rocking guitar. Indeed. (laughs) 